Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. On this, the darkest day of the year, we will be discussing the first collected volume of Neil Gaiman's seminal graphic novel series, The Sandman. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody. So on this Patreon-exclusive episode, we're going to be looking at Volume 1 of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, which is collected as Preludes and Nocturnes. This collects issues 1 through 8 of the original comic. So if you're following along in one of the Ultimate Editions or the Omnibus Editions, those are the ones to look for. Quick side note, since we have stated that this is a Patreon-only bonus edition of the podcast... I'd like to let you know, if you are listening to this on our regular feed, that this is going to be shortened, but the full episode is available at patreon.com slash waystonepod. So we're going to be looking at the overall story, characters, and themes, and then we're also going to be tying them into the larger DC Comics universe because we're nerds. All right, so let's get some disclaimers out of the way before we really dive in in earnest. First, we're in no way affiliated with any of the authors that we talk about on here or their publishers. So in this case, we're talking about Neil Gaiman. We're not affiliated with DC Comics or Vertigo Publishing either. Nor any of the artists that did such a wonderful job on the Sandman comics. Second of all, we're naturally going to assume that you have a degree of familiarity with the comics themselves, so we hope you don't mind spoilers, because there's going to be some. We're going to try to limit it to preludes and nocturnes. So if you have no desire whatsoever to be spoiled on what is a... How old is this? It's 30 years old now. Right. I should have known that. It's actually 32 years... 33 years old? It's 33 years old because this was from... 2018. Right. Our 30th anniversary edition is from 2018. So if you haven't read it yet... There's a really easy way to get the story that you can do and then come back. Amazon has a wonderful, wonderful edition of this on Audible, where it is essentially a audio drama version of it. And it has James McAvoy playing Dream and Kat Dennings as Death and a whole beautiful, wonderful, amazing cast. And it was so, so well done. That audio drama is a lot of fun. Plus it's narrated by Neil Gaiman, which is hard to go wrong with. He's in that list of authors that we would listen to read the telephone book if they gave us the opportunity. So I highly recommend that. Again, the print editions are beautiful. If you want to spring for the ultimate editions, I think they're worth it. The omnibus editions are just gorgeous. They're very big, nice hardcover editions. And apparently, as I found out a day after it was no longer on sale, it had gone on sale for like a third of the normal price on Amazon. I'm not necessarily going to say everyone needs to buy from Amazon. I would much rather people spend their money at independent comic book shops and at independent bookstores but I realize also that $150 per book is a little steep for some people, us included. Also knowing that you have to do what you can to get this stuff, and I'd much rather people pay for it. 
period, rather than trying to pirate it, just because these are worth owning. Yep. When we thought about doing this, honestly, all of our Patreon money that we have earned so far in the two years we have been doing this pretty much went to go pay for the entire series in a collected 30th anniversary edition. Yeah, that box set is worth its weight. <laughs> it is absolutely fantastic. Strongly recommend picking it up. It's a great read. We'll give a brief mention here. This is definitely an adult comic. This is not for anyone who is a child. If they are a kid, I would not give them this. I could see giving this to an older teenager. Maybe. Like, no, absolutely. So when I first was exposed to it, that's how old I was. I was like 17 or 18. Okay, 17 or 18 is different than what I was thinking that you meant. I thought you meant like 15 or 16. 16 maybe could handle it, but you would want to probably have some conversations with the reader about this because there's a lot of heavy subjects and it's also definitely a product of and reaction to its time, specifically 1980s Britain, which had its own series of issues coming out of Thatcherism and things like that. So definitely has some elements that may not make sense to a contemporary reader and some of the societal issues that they refer to may not make sense if you don't have that historical context. The other thing about this that kind of made it serendipitous for me, the 30th anniversary edition of Preludes and Nocturnes has a foreword by Patrick Rothfuss. Which we'll get into here momentarily, because I figured this being a King Killer podcast, we kind of have to talk about this. Yes. Let's start with the opening quotations that show up on the first page because I think they're going to set the stage nicely for what's to come. So our first quote is biblical. It comes from the book of Job, chapter 28, verses 12, 13, and 18. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the price of understanding? Man knoweth not the price thereof, neither is it found in the land of the living, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. Now... All of this is foreshadowing. And then the second one is, D is for a lot of things. John D, All Fool's Day, 1989. Now, this is obviously referring to a line spoken by the character John D in the story here. John D himself is also a reference to a Elizabethan-era sorcerer who was known for being a practitioner of the Hermetic Arts back during the Elizabethan era and was known for being the court astrologer. And he's sort of this legendary figure from that era that a lot of people have speculated about and, you know, really embraced as this either sinister or heroic figure, depending on the outlook. Neil Gaiman himself has played with John Dee as a character multiple times. In Marvel 1602, he also turns John Dee into Doctor Strange with Doctor Strange basically fulfilling that role and occasionally using that name. So just a fun little callback there. Also, there is a lot of Alan Mooricism in this. We'll talk a little bit about that. And anytime you talk about Alan Moore, there's going to be magic. One other thing to note, Neil Gaiman is very, very into mythology and very, very into historical fiction. And this series is a patchwork of all of those. The thing to remember about this particular story is that all myths are true. 
because they are all dreams, and anything that is a dream is real. So, keep that in mind. So let's start out with our introduction here. Patrick Rothfuss tells us about his first time really getting into comics, and then diving into Sandman in particular. So as a kid, he read a lot. Like, a lot. Mostly science fiction and fantasy, but it was almost all novels, starting from the age of nine up. He kind of had the same view of comics that a lot of people seem to have, which is that they are either for children or all about superheroes or both. And even if they were about superheroes, they couldn't be serious fair. To which I would counter he has to read something like Mouse. Or this book. Or The Watchmen, which he did. Yeah. Or The Dark Knight Returns, which is actually what started him on this journey of comic books are not just for kids. So this series here grows out of the Vertigo publishing imprint at DC Comics. Just for some general comics history for you folks, Vertigo was something that DC started in the late 80s, early 90s as a way to give independent comics artists and writers who wanted to tell more adult stories a place to do so. So instead of having to target all ages and adhere to the comics code, which was instituted back in the 50s when there was a great big moral panic over comic books as a way that would corrupt the youth. These would be books that were aimed squarely at adult readers. These were meant to discuss sensitive topics and adult content. They could be violent, they could be sexually explicit, they could contain drug use, and they oftentimes dealt with dark topics and subject matter in ways that typical comics really didn't. This is where you started seeing the rise of graphic novel as a format, as opposed to just comic books. So other people in this era that you saw a lot of were Alan Moore, as I mentioned earlier, who did Watchmen and V for Vendetta, a bunch of other stuff, as well as Frank Miller, whose Dark Knight Returns was an adult reimagining of Batman. So Patrick Rothfuss reminds me a lot of me at parties which is to say, I'm not really a party person. Somebody had brought a copy of The Dark Knight Returns, and he just kind of found it, and he holed himself up in the corner and read it. I love his reaction to this. How come no one ever told me this was so good? <laughs> People probably did, and he probably poo-pooed it. And his friend who'd brought the book said, most aren't this good but there are a few that are about as good. And then gave him The Watchmen, again, classic Alan Moore. And then from there, he got into Sandman. And at this point, Patrick Rothfuss was reading a lot of classic literature for his undergraduate courses and thought that Shakespeare was the highest form out there. And after reading Sandman and completing it, his response was, well, Shakespeare wishes he could write something this good. One thing to also note about Vertigo and specifically Sandman, this is a horror comic. This is not meant as just easy reading fiction. And Vertigo gave comics artists the opportunity to have more horrific stories and depictions. And there's definitely some disturbing imagery within. One thing I noticed in the artwork here is almost all of the characters have an element of grotesquery to them. 
sometimes it's even just grotesque mundanity. Like, nobody here is looking like a Greek god, you know, with chiseled physique and... I will counter that with Lucifer Morningstar, but okay. But even then, like, Lucifer is not portrayed as, you know, walking around shirtless the whole time. No, but he's still very lovely. Oh, yes, but that's his whole shtick. Yes. Yeah, we have these very different portrayals of humanity compared to what we would see in a mainstream comic where everything is just muscles for days. Most of these people are kind of normal in their physique. You wouldn't bat an eye if you saw them on the streets. So to just wrap up Patrick Rothfuss's part, there are a couple of things that I think are really good about his introduction. He says specifically, the Sandman broadened my horizons. There were gay characters, trans characters, queer characters. And for the most part, it really wasn't that big a deal for the people in the story. Nobody really seemed to care that much. For a small town boy from Wisconsin in the 90s, that was important. I didn't have much of that in my life. And I was a better person for having been exposed to it. He also says that he found comfort in reading and rereading this series. I don't think we need to go over every line of what he said, but what I'm getting at is that he gives this high praise and says, why are you reading what I wrote? Go read the book. And one thing that I will also carry on, just to plant a seed in your mind here to think about, you can definitely see the influences from Sandman on the Kingkiller Chronicle. Both of these are stories about stories and their structure and their relationship to reality. In Sandman, there's sort of a magical realism where stories and dreams become real in these very surreal fashions. Some of these are happy stories, some of these are terrifying stories, but they all have equal weight in reality. And it's a fascination that I can see carried over into the works we see in the Kingkiller Chronicle particularly when we talk about the Fey Realm, where the rules of story are almost as important as the rules of physics. So keep an eye out for that stuff. So there's also a touching forward from Karen Berger, who was the founder of Vertigo and the editor of Sandman. I suggest that you read it when you read the comic. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into issue one. This is called The Sleep of the Just. Our story kicks off in 1916 at the forebodingly named Witchcross, England. England is full of towns with these sorts of names. Here is where we meet our first antagonist, Roderick Burgess, who is plotting a ritual. With the help of a doctor from the Royal Society, he's obtained this rare grimoire called the Magdalene Grimoire with which he proposes to perform a ritual that will trap death. Thus, no one will ever die again. In the context of when this is taking place, you can actually see the motive behind this. This was taking place at the height of World War I, where entire generations of young men were dying off in the trenches across Europe and Africa. It was absolute horror, made flesh, made real. It was absolutely terrifying for its participants and for the people back home who were basically watching their children sent off to die. There's even a little vignette about someone who lied about their age to be able to go to war. He's 13. 
They say he's almost 14, which makes it a little more horrific in my brain. I don't want to go panel by panel, bit by bit on the story specifically. I want to talk about themes. We can touch on plot for sure. Let's talk a little bit about the binding because I think that has some really interesting thematic things. And I think these may provide some foreshadowing for things to come. So the binding that Burgess and his cronies perform here includes a coin Burgess made from stone, a song Burgess stole from the dirt, a knife from under the hills, a stick Burgess stuck into a dead man's eye, a claw Burgess ripped from a rat, a name that is lost, blood from Burgess's veins, and a feather that Burgess pulled from an angel's wing. All of this stuff is very evocative, kind of Eye of Newt type stuff. So into the summoning circle, instead of death, however, they get someone else altogether different. They get Morpheus, Dream, the Lord of Sleep, the Sandman. Who is one of the endless. Death is also one of the endless. And Dream's sister. We'll talk a bit more about death when we get to the end of this episode. At first, Burgess and his cronies don't really know what to do and they're kind of disappointed. And they decide that they will keep their new prisoner captive in a crystal bubble surrounded by a magic circle to prevent him from being able to influence anything. But with Dream gone, it has catastrophic ramifications for the rest of the planet. We get to see some vignettes of specific people that this has affected. Children, adults, all falling asleep and not being able to wake up, and others who will never sleep again until death takes them. And this goes on for 100 years, or almost 100 years. One thing to note about the audio drama, they changed the time frame. They made it more contemporary, and they changed a couple of the details surrounding the vignettes. There are things that maybe make it make more sense for a contemporary audience, but I don't know that we need to necessarily go into those here. The important things are that after the ritual, we see Burgess pleading with Morpheus to give him power in exchange for release, constantly trying to bargain with this implacable silent figure. Ultimately, that doesn't work, and we get a number of pages where we go through time pretty quickly. He goes back to Morpheus over and over again, still nothing, and he dies empty-handed. The most important thing to remember here, and what will drive the action, is that Burgess and his cronies steal three tools. So first, we have Morpheus's helmet, which is this sort of insectile gas mask thing, which is pretty cool looking. Then there is a bag of sand, sleep dust, you know. And then finally, his magic ruby amulet, which is what he uses to exert his will over the stuff of dreams. So this is going to set up a quest storyline, a quest plot, which is what the story is loosely hung on to for this first graphic novel or first eight editions of the monthly comic. And it's a good way to get people hooked on the character. But I think... You can see, even as this is going on, Neil Gaiman and his collaborators had something bigger in mind. And we'll get to that. 
A thing to know also is over this montage of time that is passing, the betrayer is betrayed and the three items are stolen from Burgess and scattered to the four winds. Eventually after Roderick Burgess dies of old age, he passes his power on to his son, Alex Burgess, who is mostly just kind of interested in maintaining the mystique of an old sorcerer for the hippie generation. He seems like a lackluster cult leader. Yeah, he doesn't quite have his father's pure malevolence, but he is just as self-serving. And he doesn't let Dream go, which is important. He just kind of, well, I guess my dad tried to make a deal with this guy and I'm going to continue doing that because it wasn't my fault that he decided to capture him. But I mean, if I let him go, he's probably going to kill me. So I should just keep him, right? He talks about Morpheus here like he's this tiger that's been kept in the basement. Look, I didn't want to put the tiger in the basement, but the tiger's in the basement now and I can't let him out because then he'll eat me. <laughs> he makes some half-hearted attempts to sound like he's better, but he really isn't in any material way. And this goes on for decades until even Alex Burgess is now an old man himself and is down in the basement visiting with Morpheus, attempting to extract some kind of power from him. And when he turns to leave in his wheelchair, the wheelchair breaks the magic circle. And it's from this that Morpheus is finally able to access a portion of his powers. One of his guards, for the first time ever, takes a little cat nap. Like, you know how while you're doing something else like reading or watching TV and just your head lulls. And then you do the snapback. Well, the person head lulls, starts dreaming a little bit. And of course he's laying on a beach with sand and Morpheus reaches into the dream, pulls some of that sand back and wreaks havoc. <laughs> Pretty much. He starts by playing dead getting the guards to come and try and check on him to see what's going on. And that's all he needs, because then from there he's able to put them to sleep and then escape into the world, and now he is naked and starving. I love his little escape sequence, because first he's like, I need food. So where does he find food? Obviously in dreams. So he has to find someone's food dreams. And the most he can find is somebody with a bucket of Colonel Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> I love that they don't specifically state that that's what it is, but it's very clearly that by the art. And then he has to figure out some kind of clothing. So he crafts for himself a black coat with a fiery red hem. Which if you listen to Neil Gaiman or if you read his afterward, that's kind of how Neil Gaiman himself chooses to dress, all black. And in the 80s, the trench coat in particular was how Neil Gaiman himself chose to dress. <laughs> Morpheus is very much patterned after Neil Gaiman, both in physique and also in sartorial choices. At this point, also, the people who were affected by what was deemed, what was it, encephalitis... The sleeping sickness. That works. Wake up. It has been decades. One of them had a child by rape and didn't wake up through the entire thing. One of them was in a kind of sleeping waking state for almost all of his life. 
and finally got out of his zombie-like stupor. There are just all of these little details and all of these side stories, and it gives the world depth and texture. Finally, Morpheus wreaks his vengeance on Alex Burgess, and he visits Burgess in his sleep. And then takes on the visage of a cat, because Morpheus is a cat. He really kind of is. He's a very good cat. As someone who has a black cat himself, I have an affinity for them. And I love here that Morpheus as this black cat is a creature of caprice and also potentially mercy. He doesn't actually kill Alex. He just grants him the gift of eternal wakefulness. And his waking life becomes a nightmare. That ends the first chapter, so let's talk a bit about our DC Comics tie-ins. So there's really only one in this first issue, and that is to Wesley Dodd, who was the Golden Age character Sandman, the first character to have a book under this title in DC Comics history. This was a comic that came out during World War II. It was a popular sort of Dick Tracy-esque thing. And it was a gangster comic, first and foremost. A contemporary of Batman in that era, because everyone was kind of Batman in one form or another, maybe with a little less flamboyance. <laughs> and so when Neil Gaiman announced that he was going to be doing this comic called The Sandman, naturally people thought he was talking about reviving this Golden Age figure, which really nobody understood why would you do that. <laughs> I think this is a fun little nod to that, and Wesley Dodd himself is going to show back up again as a figure within the series. In this case, he's fulfilling sort of a void within the larger universe. There needs to be a Sandman, a dream in the universe, and so Wesley Dodd is taking on that mantle of sorts. So if you've enjoyed this little snippet of our Sandman talk, feel free to give us a subscription on Patreon. We've got a lot more where that came from, and we're looking forward to doing these quarterly. We will be doing all of the books. We do a Patreon-only bonus pod once every equinox and solstice, and for the foreseeable future, next few years, it will be on Sandman. Again, thank you so much for joining us for this little brief bit, and for those of you on Patreon, we'll keep going. I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And as always, thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. The next one of our deep dives into the Sandman graphic novels will be on volume two, and that will happen at the spring equinox. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Neil Gaiman for making this fantastic series to dig into. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get the full extended version of this podcast, and we're going to continue releasing Sandman deep dives for however long that lasts. Every vernal and autumnal equinox, as well as every winter and summer solstice, in the order that it actually comes up in. Eh. 
you know what I mean. And then we also have tiers that allow for early access to the podcast. Whenever I get done editing it, it goes up on there. It could be two weeks early. It could be four days early. It usually isn't anything less than four days early. And we also have tiers that allow you to kind of nudge me to make more art or to have me send you random bits of art that are kind of just in our home now because I made them and I had no goal in mind for where they would wind up. So if you want some of that, there's a tier for you. Anyway, we really appreciate you listening to our breakdown of Preludes and Nocturnes. I know this isn't our normal feed and I don't know if this is going out on our normal day and in replacement of a regular episode. And I don't know if it went out as a solstice present for all of you because I really don't know how much backlog we have by the time that this is released because we got an unexpected, hey, would you like to go to Emerald City Comic Con? And that kind of torpedoed our ability to do a recording session on the day that we're going there. So who knows? I don't know. You know now because it has happened by this point. Otherwise, I wouldn't be rambling it into your ears. But we would love it if you could help us grow our Patreon community. And if you're that interested in the Sandman comics, we really, really, really want to talk to you about it. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! And second of all, <coughs> ah. excuse me. <laughs> I did not want that to happen. <laughs> I dare say you didn't. Mm.